Now, we looked at that uh, video just now. Uh, you remember that when God rescued his people from Egypt, what did he do? He brought them to this place called Mount Sinai, isn't it? Uh, and uh, when we came to Mount Sinai, there you go, there you go, there's, the, there's a map. Uh, God rescues people from Egypt, he brings them down to here in Mount Sinai. Right? And they get to Mount Sinai uh, about 19 chapters in uh, to the book of Exodus. And the rest of the book of Exodus, there they are in Mount Sinai. After Exodus, you've got the book of Leviticus. The whole of the book of Leviticus, they are still at Mount Sinai. And then after Leviticus, you've got Numbers. And when Numbers opens, they are still at Mount Sinai. In fact, the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers is based at Mount Sinai. And so, if we come to Numbers chapter 1, we hear the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, speaking to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. Right? This time he's not speaking from the mountain, he's in the wilderness. More specifically, in verse 1, he's in the tent of meeting speaking. Right? The tent of meeting is the tabernacle. Uh, they'd built the tabernacle following God's command uh, back at Sinai, well, there at Sinai. And God had promised Moses that he would speak to him audibly from within. And he did. He, he spoke his word to his prophet. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in, in many times and in various ways. And, and this is one of them. God spoke audibly to Moses. And all this happens... Verse 1 continues, in the second year after they've come out of the land of Egypt. So they left Egypt, they've been at Mount Sinai just over a year now. And over this last year, God has given them many commands, He's given them various laws, He's ordained various feasts and sacrifices. He's set up a system that divides everything into unclean, clean and holy. He is forming a people for Himself that is different from the rest of the world. But not only is God forming a people for himself, he is changing them from being a disorganized group of slaves to being a well-ordered war machine. And the first step in doing that, well, to ascertain where they are. Or to use corporate language, work out what their human resources are. And so God tells Moses to take a census. In verse 2 we read, God saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, not finished yet, okay, by fathers' houses according to the number of names, every male head by head. From 20 years old and upwards, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. So who is in the census? It's not everyone, isn't it? This is a military census. We want to know how many men are able to fight in the war because God's people are going to war and this census is to work out what their strength is it's pretty obvious that Moses can't do this alone he'll need a team of people to help him and so God says to him in verse 4 there shall be with you a man from each tribe each man being the head of the house of his fathers and so one man is chosen by God from each of the tribes in verse 5 to 15 and Moses and Aaron take these men and they assemble the whole congregation, the whole community together so that people can register themselves. And they do that, clan by clan, family by family, person by person. And verse 20 down to verse 46 are the results. 
we see there a list of tribes, tribe after tribe. We've got Reuben in verse 20, Simeon in 22, Gad in 24, then Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, Naphtali. Twelve tribes in all. And we read the number of men who are able to go to war given in each one, with a grand total in verse 46 of just over 600,000 men. You wonder why God tells Moses to take this census? And it's a huge task, isn't it? I'm sure God already knows the number. He he could have just told Moses. That would be easier. But God puts them through this great exercise. Because not just about getting the total. Individuals, families, clans are registered. God is shaping His people. He's making them an army. He wants them to see that. He wants them to see that that everyone who can fight is expected to fight. And they are numbered. And He's also making sure that the records are kept as a basis for the genealogies of the future one of which will end up in Christ. And so all the battle-ready men are counted and the results are listed. But if you go through all those tribes just now, you might notice that the tribe of Levi is missing. Because God says to Moses in verse 49, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. Now you might remember there are 12 tribes in Israel, And those of you who are good at maths will know that 12 minus 1 equals 11. But there are still 12 listed up here. So how do you get 12? Well, Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And instead of counting one tribe of Joseph, they count two half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. So they can still get the number 12. Because why? Because 12 is the number of the people of God. You've got to have a 12. Have the complete people. So you count the warriors of God. It's got to come up to 12. Right? And that number 12 is going to be important right throughout the Bible, isn't it? You come to the New Testament, Jesus purposely chooses 12 to be his apostles. Now, why are the Levites not counted? Remember, this is a census of warriors. The Levites are not going to go to war. They've got another job to do. Verse 15. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. When the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp, and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of testimony, so there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. What's this tabernacle? Well, the tabernacle is like a mobile temple. You can see a, a, a picture of it there, done with tents. I remember how I mentioned just now when God brought them out of Egypt at Mount Sinai, right? In the Exodus, God told them to build this this tabernacle. He gave Moses detailed instructions of everything inside. And Moses did. The cloud of God's glory filled the tabernacle. God dwelt there among his people. 
And the Levite's job was to look after that tabernacle and all its furnishings. They were to dismantle it later when it's time to move and they'll carry it and they'll carry all the things in the move and they'll set it up when it's time to stop. They'll encamp around it and they'll guard it. And remember what it said in verse 51? If anyone was to, from outside comes near, he was to be put to death. God is holy and people can't simply waltz into his presence. And so the Levites would be, as it were, custodians of the tabernacle. All the other tribes would fight in battle, but the Levites would look after God's tent. So the fighters are counted. That's not enough. Now we need to actually not just count them, but set them out properly. Israel is no longer going to randomly pitch their tents all over the place. Right? They're going to be nicely organized. So later on they can march in order. And so in chapter 2, God sets up the order. He says in verse 2, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banner of their father's houses. The, the, the family emblems or symbols are put up to identify each family in the tribe. And it says they shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. In other words, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, is going to be the center. God's going to dwell in the center of his people. And the tribes of Israel are going to camp on every side facing that center. On the east side, verse 3, is Judah. And then, in verse 5, Issachar. And then Zebulun. On the south side, in verse 10, is Reuben. And then Simeon and Gad. On the west side, in verse 18, is Ephraim, and then Manasseh and Benjamin. On the north side, Dan, verse 25, and then Asher and Naphtali. And if you look at the details of chapter 2, each time God mentions the tribe, he again gives a total in each company repeated from the census, and the name of the leader he appointed from chapter 1. And the total in all the camps in verse 32 is just over 600,000. You can see on the screen coming up, there will be a diagram representing uh, that. And you see all God's people in their place gathered around him. And God dwells in the midst of his people. But once again, you've got something missing, isn't it? Who's missing? Who's missing? The Levites. Yes. Where do they camp? Well, we're going to find out in a moment, but before we find out about that, there's something God reminds them and reminds us. And so the focus now will zoom in, not just on the Levites, but on a very special group of Levites, the sons of Aaron. Remember, Aaron was the brother of Moses. He was a high priest of Israel. He was a Levite. And he had four sons. They are listed in verse 2 of chapter 3. The names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab, the firstborn, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And these sons of Aaron were anointed as priests. We often think of the anointed one as, as being king. But the priests were anointed as well. But out of these four sons, only two were alive. What happened to the other two? Well, the first two in verse 4, 
Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Back in the book of Leviticus, they took it upon themselves to burn incense to God that he had not commanded. And fire came out from him and consumed them. For God is holy and you cannot play play with God. We are reminded about this incident. First up, before God tells us more about the Levites and the priests. And so it's the other two brothers, Eliezer and Ethema, who serve as priests and whose descendants were going to be the priests of Israel. God is God, and the God who dwells in the midst of his people is a holy God. Cannot be trifled with. Having been reminded of that, we're now to hear about the tribe of Levites. God reminds Moses about the job of the Levites in verse 5 to 9 of chapter 3, in words quite similar to what we saw already. And he speaks about the work of Aaron and his sons in verse 10. They are the priests. They should guard their priests, or they are the only priests. And if any outsider comes near, once again, he shall be put to death. God is holy. And people not especially set aside to be holy cannot approach. And then God explains the basis of why he keeps the Levites separate from the rest of the people. How, how, does, it, how does it all work? Look at verse 12. Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of the firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. You remember when God rescued his people out of Egypt? He brought the plagues on the Egyptians one by one by one. The last plague was what? When God brought his judgment and he killed the firstborn, isn't it? Uh, Of all the Egyptians. He didn't kill the firstborn Israelites because each Israelite family sacrificed a lamb instead. And God said those who... Those who are saved by that sacrifice, that sacrifice of the Lamb, those who who escaped that death by that sacrifice, they actually now belong to Him. Though they, they should have died when God's judgment came, they were saved through a sacrifice, and now they are His. God reminds them in verse 13. On the day I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt... I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. So those who are redeemed by God, those who are saved by God, belong to Him for service. And the word there is consecrated. It means being set apart to be holy. It means being set apart for service. Those who are saved by God belong to God for service. But in this case, instead of all the firstborn, every family being sent to go and work at the tabernacle, God says, I tell you what, I'll just take one tribe instead. And so the Levites replace, or they represent, the firstborn of Israel uh, to serve God. Does that make sense? So, we need to know how many firstborn there are and how many Levites there are to make sure we've, you know, it's a fair bargain, right? Uh, and so in verse 15, God commands 
the census of the Levites. And so they count them. Uh, in verse uh, 15, uh, from one month old and upward. Notice, uh, this is not a census of fighters. It's not a census of fighting men. They want to know uh, that they're going to compare with the number of firstborn sons, and so this is the one that they, they take this number. Now, when they come to census the, the Levites, they do it in a very organized way. You see, Levi, he's the son of Jacob, he's the ancestor of all the Levites. He has three sons, Gershon, Kohath, Kohath, and Merari. Okay, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Gershon and Merari each have two sons, Kohath has four. So altogether, there's eight grandsons. Got it? Each of the eight grandsons forms a clan. Right? And so there are eight clans. But when it comes to dividing up into duties, Moses divides them into three groups according to the sons of Levi they are from. And so there's two clans under Gershon and Merari, four clans under Kohath. And it's not just for duties. Remember how God gave a place to every tribe around the tabernacle? Uh, we wondered what happened to the Levites. Well, now we see. Uh, Levites are given a place now. And the descendants of Levi's three sons are given different sides. Uh, and so in verse 21 to 25, Moses gives the number of the descendants of Gershon, the Gershonites, and they are to camp beside the tabernacle on the west. So you see Levi's G there. And he gives them responsibility for the general... He, 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 he talks generally about their responsibility, and it's mostly to do with the screens and the hangings and the coverings that make up the tabernacle. And then in verse 26 to 32, he does the same for the descendants of Kohath, the Kohathites. That's the group with the four clans. And they're to camp on the south. Uh, their job, generally, was to do with the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the vessels, as well as the screens... Uh, those holy things inside. And one of them, Eleazar, the son of Aaron, is named as leader of all the Levites. And then in verse 33 to 37, he gives the responsibility of the descendants of Merari. Uh, and they were to look after the bars, the pillars, the bases, the pegs, the cords, uh, you know, the framework kind of stuff. And they were to camp on the north. And then Moses and Aaron, his sons, the priests, they were to camp just outside the tabernacle on the east, guarding the way in. And so there you have, around the tabernacle, are the people of God, but between them and the tabernacle itself are the Levites. And on the east side, where the entrance is, there are the priests. I see that all nicely there on the diagram on the screen. And when the census is done, there are 22,000 Levites from a month old and upwards. But remember, they are to replace the firstborn, to belong especially to the Lord. So, ah, now you've got to work out the number of the firstborn, isn't it? And the number of the firstborn they discovered listed for a month old is 22,273, which means there's only 273 extra firstborn than there are Levites. So what are you going to do? Well, verse 48... God tells Moses uh, to take, or actually verse 47, five shekels per head. 
redemption money. That's the normal price of a slave at the time. And Moses takes five, and that's the, the repent, the, that's the redemption price, right, for each of those people, the 273. So Moses takes five times 273, which is 1365, for the firstborn of Israel, and gives it to Aaron in obedience to God's word. So, settled. And now that is sorted, we can go back to look more carefully at the duties of the Levites. Now, and that is chapter 4. Chapter 4, if you're, looking, if you're using the church Bibles, I want you to notice that the, the heading in our translation is not very accurate, right? The black heading there, you see where it says the duties of the Kohathites? Right? The black heading there is actually not part of the text, Bible text. It's helpfully, these headings are helpfully put there by our translators to help us to, to, to find our way around. Uh, but since they're not part of God's Word, they can actually be wrong. And here, I think it is, because they've made the heading the duty of the Kohathites to cover the whole chapter, right? But actually, the duty of the Kohathites only cover verses 1 to 37. After that, you've got the duty of the Gershonites, and then you've got the duty of the Merorites. So the heading is going to cover the whole chapter. It should be the duty of the Levites, isn't it? It covers the whole thing. So, remember how God gave the general duties to each of those three groups uh, in chapter 3. Well, in chapter 4, he goes into all the details. Right? First thing, the number of people who will need to do the heavy work in the tabernacle. Uh, need to be determined. Another census is ordered, and this time it's for males 30 to 50 years old. And we get that. Uh, the sons of Kohath, the Kohathites, well, they are to look after the transporting of the most holy things. You see the details of that in verses 5 all the way down to verse 16. However, the priests were to carefully wrap them up first. Uh, the rest of the Kohathites are not allowed to touch them. If they do, verse 15, they will die. In fact, God warns them in verse 20 that they're not even meant to go inside and look at the holy things, lest they die. Right? This is very, very serious, isn't it? You see, holy things are holy. It's not for tourism. It's not, for, it's not even for the Levites to go and have a look at. God is holy, and the things that, that belong to Him are exclusively His. More details on the Gershonite duties in verse, uh, verse uh, 21 to 38. And then the Merorites are told what they should do uh, in verses uh, uh, 42 to 48. Right? And the, section, the whole section ends this way in verse 49. According to the command of the Lord through Moses, each are listed, each one with his task of caring or serving. So you see, what the Kohathites are meant to carry, how they serve, each of the, and then the, the, the Gershonites, and then the Merarites. And God has got a different job for each group of Levites. Uh, each belongs to God. Each is set apart for Him. One group can't do the job of the other, but all of them have the privilege and responsibility of service. So that's Numbers 1 to 4. How does it apply to us? Well, there are four main things I'd like us to, to take away. Number one, we have already seen that God's people are counted to prepare for war. God's people are counted to prepare for war. And remember, every male, 20 years old and upwards, were counted because they are the ones who are expected to fight in battle. There were no spectators watching it on CNN. If they're there, 
they are counted. And so it is with us. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. We don't fight with a sword and spear, we fight with the message of the gospel and prayer. That is what will conquer the enemy. And so all of us, not just the people who are best to fight in physical battle, are, are involved. God has counted all his people. All our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But we are counted to be warriors. Be prepared for battle. There are no spectators among God's people. If you're one of God's people, you're expected to fight. We all know the gospel. We all can pray. That's what we need to do, isn't it? To pray for people, to tell them about Jesus, and if we're God's people, then we're in his army. The church is an army, not a concert. So, we are ready to fight. Secondly, we see that God dwelt at the very center of his people. Remember we saw how God's people arranged around the tabernacle with God at the very center, right? And God dwelling with his people. That, that's something, that whole theme of God dwelling with his people is a, is a big theme throughout the Bible, isn't it? Right? From Genesis, where Adam and Eve walk with God, and then they lose that when they're expelled. In the Exodus, the tabernacle is set up. The cloud of God's glory fills the tabernacle. And then in Numbers, God's people here are arranged nicely with Him at the center. Because when God dwells with His people, His is the very central place. And when we get to the New Testament, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or tabernacled among us, or pitched His tent among us depending on how you want to translate it. For Jesus is the true tabernacle. He's the true place where we meet God. And God's plan for us as his people is that Jesus would be at the very center of all that we do. Israel wasn't meant to have a market or a hospital or a court or an office at the center and have the tabernacle off on the side somewhere for the people who like to do religious things. No, 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 no. God was meant to be at the very heart of their life together. And that is the place of Jesus among God's people, isn't it? It will be on the final day when people from every tribe and language and nation gather before him. And we must reflect that today. Is Jesus at the center of your life? And is Jesus at the center of our church? Because he's suddenly meant to be. Him we proclaim. Him we praise. We seek to present everyone mature in Him. Our service is response to, to God's grace in Him. We know He has to be at the center. We can't keep Him in a corner. Can't just bring Him up for the religious part of our life together, you know? Like for the service and then maybe just for the prayers before the food or something like that. No, no, no. Knowing, loving, and serving Jesus must be at the very heart of what we're on about. And the Jesus that we proclaim is, well, he's the one who's come in fulfillment of the Old Testament as the one who would die for our sins in our place and rise again as King as Lord. Christ comes to us clothed in his gospel. So if Jesus is at the very center of our life together, then his gospel is at the very center of our life together, isn't it? 
And this King Jesus rules us by his spirit through his word. And so if Jesus is the very center, then his word will be absolutely important for us when we gather together. We will seek to hear his word and obey him. Now, if Jesus is the center, then the pastor is not the center. The church doesn't revolve around me for my benefit. It revolves around him. If Jesus is the center, then, then you're not at the center either. The church doesn't revolve around you for your benefit, enjoyment, or taste. It revolves around him. If Jesus is at the center, the goal isn't that we get more numbers, just more activities, more fun, more fellowship. Important as these things are, that's... If Jesus is the center, then we look to his word to see what are his priorities and seek to follow him. And he has told us he wants us to make disciples of all the nations. He wants people to come to know him as their Lord and their Savior, to grow more and more like him. God dwelt among his people at the very central place. So let's make sure we keep Jesus at the center of our church. Thirdly, we also saw that the God who dwelt among his people is the holy God. Just because he's living with them doesn't mean they can take him lightly. People who approached him wrongly didn't take his holiness into account. They died. You cannot simply approach a holy God only the priests who could come into God's presence and deal with the holy things. And even they couldn't make up what, they had, what they're doing to worship God. They had to do it his way. And when they didn't, they died. And that's still the same today, isn't it? We cannot approach God on our own terms. We have to come on his. We need to take into account this warning of Nadab and Abihu. We don't make up the way that he is approached. He does. God is holy. We must take into account the warning about those who might come to the tabernacle unauthorized. They would die because, because God is holy. He is not tame and he cannot be domesticated. This God that we read about in the book of Leviticus, he is our God. And he has not become soft and cuddly to fit in with 21st century expectations. We must not even try to approach him on our own. We must not even think we could possibly rock up into his presence with our own good works and think that he's going to be okay with that. We mustn't even imagine that doing religious things is going to help us. In and of ourselves, we are sinners before a holy God. And if we, even if we avoid him now, we will have to face him one day. So how do we approach him? We do it his way. We do it the only way we can. We do it through Jesus. Jesus is the great high priest. All the priest of the Old Testament is fulfilled in him. He is the one who has made the sacrifice for sin once and for all. And he sacrificed his very self. 
bearing our sin and our punishment in our place. We can come to the Holy God and we can only come to the Holy God through trusting in Jesus. But we can come to the Holy God through trusting in Jesus. And that is a great and wonderful privilege, isn't it? need to keep on realizing what a great privilege that is. Hebrews 10 says this, coming up on the screen. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, that's the, that's the inner part of the tabernacle, we should have been killed way outside there. But we come all the way into the most holy place. Why? By the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, His body. And since we have a great, high, great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. We can approach God through the sacrifice of Jesus. Any other way we die. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because the God who dwells among us is a holy God. One interesting thing we read about in this passage was those holy things. Remember how the, the Levites, who were not priests, not even allowed to touch them, lest they die? You know, they have to carry them, but the, the priests have to wrap them all up carefully beforehand. Because... Holy things are holy. You touch, you die. That reflects the holiness of God. Today we sometimes have people who want to bring back holy things. They have holy objects, holy water, holy articles. And their intentions are good because they want to recover a sense of God's holiness. But the problem is, Nobody gets struck down when they touch this pseudo-holy paraphernalia. So it looks like God can be manipulated. It looks like God can be domesticated. But I've got a handle on him. I can handle holy things and not die. And paradoxically, that actually diminishes our perception of the holiness of God. That actually does the opposite of what they're really trying to do. But in the New Testament, there are no holy things, no objects that are considered holy. That's part of the ceremonial law that's been fulfilled in Christ. But the picture that the Old Testament gives us of these things is meant to stay with us. It reminds us that God is holy and we can't simply go and touch His things. So we don't need to manufacture a sense of God's holiness. We see it for ourselves, not by recreating it ourselves, but by seeing it in the way that God has chosen to give it to us. That is, in His Word. And as we read His Word, we see the warnings, we see the encouragements, we see His holiness. And we see, and we see it God's way, not our way. Now, we said there are no holy things in the New Testament, but what there are is holy people. 
And we're not just talking about some special leaders. Those who are in Christ, those who are God's people, are considered holy. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so let me say, you and I should be terrified. We should be absolutely terrified every time we use our bodies in a way that is displeasing to God. If it were not for the sacrifice of Jesus, applied to our lives day by day, moment by moment, we would be consumed. Because the God whom we serve is a holy God. And we are His holy people. And that's linked to our final point. Those who are redeemed belong to God for His service. Remember the principle that we saw just now? When God saves someone, they belong to Him to serve Him. That's what happened to the firstborn of Israel, isn't it? Right? Actually, they should be the ones serving God in the tabernacle. God switched them with the Levites, but the principle is there that He's wanting to teach us. And that principle applies to us. We have been redeemed. We have been saved. The Lamb, the Lord Jesus, was slain for us. And if we are trusting in Jesus, we have escaped the judgment of God against our sin. And God says, those who escape, those who are saved, belong to Him. We belong to Him for service. We are consecrated, set apart to be holy, set apart for God's service. So we are like the Levites, dedicated to Him. And how do we serve? Well, we don't have the tabernacle anymore. And we don't try and set up a pseudo-Levitical system. Tabernacle is the model. Christ is the reality. How do we serve? Well, there are a number of words translated serve or worship in the Bible. But if we take the word used here of service of the Levites... In the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and see how it's used in the New Testament, ah, then we'll be able to work it out, isn't it? And when we do, we discover it is used in three ways. First of all, it's used to reference back to this tabernacle service, or temple service, which is not surprising, because that's what it was originally talking about. Secondly, and supremely, it's used to speak of the high priestly work of Jesus. He is the true server, who serves or worships in the heavenly tabernacle. The point there for us to remember is that all our service is with Him, through Him, and in Him. But thirdly, it is also used of us in our serving of God. In Acts chapter 13, verse 2, the leaders of God's people are worshipping the Lord and fasting. And so presumably this is talking about prayer as this worshipping or serving. In 2 Corinthians 9 verse 12, Paul describes the Corinthians' donation for the church in Jerusalem as a ministry of this service. And so part of this serving is giving money. In Philippians 2.17, Paul may be about to be poured out on the sacrifice and service of the Philippians' faith. And so being faithful. Faith is part of that service. 
In Romans 15, 16, Paul is a minister, a servant of Christ in the priestly service of the gospel. And so part of the serving is bringing the gospel to others. Now that's the way it's used in those four instances. Oh, but I'm sure that's not exhaustive. We're no longer serving in an earthly tabernacle. We are like the Levites of the New Testament. We serve God in prayer, in giving, in trusting, in proclaiming, and whatever other ways God gives us. But we serve. And we are set apart to serve. And remember how God gave the Levites different roles to play as they served? Kohathites transported the wrapped up holy things, the Gershonites dealt with the screens and the hangings, the Merarites looked after the pegs and the cords. Well, we've also got different roles to play as we serve, don't we? Each one of us got a part to play. We see that in the New Testament as well. It's not the same part as the other. You can't look at each other's parts and say, oh, why can't I do that? No, we, we do what we can to serve Jesus each playing our part as servants of God. So brothers and sisters, we are God's people, counted for war. Be ready to fight. Jesus must be at the very center of our life together. We must acknowledge God's holiness and always remember that. And we know that we need to approach him only through Jesus and his blood shed for us. And as those redeemed by Jesus, we belong to God. And we are dedicated to his service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are a holy God, and we're sorry for the ways that sometimes we've become so, so callous and so blasé that we forget your holiness. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and we thank you for the incredible privilege it is that we can come to you in him, with him and through him. Thank you that we have been redeemed by him. So we belong to you. Set apart for serving you. And so we pray that you help us to do that in every area of our life. We pray that Christ would be at the very center of our lives and especially of our life together. We pray that we would never lose sight of his supremacy and his rulership over, over your church. And we pray that as your people, 
counted for war, that we would be faithful in, in that warfare, that we would be faithful in prayer and in gospel proclamation. And we pray that through these things that you will be glorified among us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.